Welcome to Failing Forward. Salah, can you introduce yourself? Hello, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. My name is Salah. I'm Assistant Candidate Director for Care Programs in Turkey. And Alison, can you introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm Alison Prather. I'm a Technical Advisor for Public Health Emergencies, working on CareUSA's Health Equity and Rights team. Talk to us about why you wanted to be on the podcast today. Why is it important for us to talk about what we've learned, both what works and what doesn't? With care operating in more than 100 countries around the world, there are many stories to be told. And I believe it's our responsibility to share those stories, to look at how our objectives and outcomes are supporting care strategy in general. For example, like how we learn how to optimize for success and discuss and discover the story behind those results. It's in a way like look like evaluation, which hope will help us to pave the way to project improvement. The area of risk communication and community engagement is such an important part of this response with COVID being so far reaching and really impacting all of our, our operational areas and our countries. Very interested to learn more about how it's working in Turkey to help support timely, accurate information that's being provided, but also what can be done to monitor feedback from communities, their perceptions, their beliefs, um, maybe fears related to the outbreak, and what CARE is doing to help address those. Tell us a little bit about the context you're operating in and what the COVID response is looking like for you right now. Well, as you know, the world faced a global health crisis, unlike any that CARE seen in the 75 years of history. So when we come to Turkey, like Turkey remains home to the largest refugees registered in the world. We talk about 4 million, of which there are 3.7 million are Syrian. Half of them are children. So we talk about very unique context and very difficult situation. The COVID-19 pandemic has taken its toll not only on Turkish nationals, but also on millions of those refugees. And particularly here, I want to talk about vulnerable subgroups, including the elderly, women, youth, and people with disability those are most at risk. The most noticeable impact of COVID-19 crisis are unfortunately on women and girls, where the increased demand for caregiving role for women and girls in the household due to the lockdown and decreased mobility, which basically put all the family members in the house all the time. So we see women are more having roles in terms of being responsible for caring for sick family members or elderly in case of absence of health services, or even if they are exist, but they can't afford, they can't afford those health services. Also, at the same time, I want to talk a little bit more about the misinformation that's not just in Turkey, also we hear how in developed countries, unfortunately, such misinformation and dangerous myths are very well spread around. So that's the situation right now. As a result of this, we are seeing there's increased violence in households who lost their income. We see there's increased stress. We look at people, how they are coping with negative coping strategies like child labor or begging for basic needs. Early and forced marriage are increased. So basically, that's the situation right now in Turkey and that's the impact on the refugees in general. Today, we're going to talk especially about this problem of rumors that you mentioned. Why is that such a big challenge to overcome right now? If we don't equip people with the right source of information, it's difficult to fight the pandemic. We need to be quick about the information. We need to be credible about the information, honest about the information that we have, 
and make it available and accessible for all people. When people are much informed about the situation, that will contribute more to their already exist vulnerability. Talk to us a little bit about why the rumors cause so many problems. For those dangerous rumors or myths, they are causing a lot of problems, including one is like they're contributing more for the vulnerability of already vulnerable subgroup that we are supporting in terms of access to the right information. When we have this panic in the community and people are not aware where to go, where to get the right information, where to access the right service, it's becoming additional barriers to their already existing vulnerability. Like I mentioned at the beginning, Turkey hosts 4 million refugees. It's the largest number in the world. Tension with the host community is possible at any second. So any misconduct or any, say, limitation with the refugee population to follow up with the, with the health guidance is contributing to the tension with the community in general. And it's been seen as, again, like, look, the refugees are the ones who might be spreading the virus or the refugees are the ones who are not following up with a health expert guidelines. I want to talk about the language barrier. For most of the refugees here, as I mentioned, 3.7 out of 4 million, they don't speak Turkish language. So the language, again, is the challenge here for people to communicate and for people to understand the situation in general. What are some of the things that you've done to overcome those challenges? So we look at risk communication and community, community engagement. So look at, we look at this through mainstreaming, uh, through e-learning and a helpline system. Through those two systems, we were able to look at capacity building, behavior change, prevent and mitigate risk of COVID-19. Let me first talk about a little bit about the e-learning. E-learning is we're working with community members directly to identify and access protection solutions and build the resilience. So we utilize exist programming as an entry point. Like for example, we have program, we work directly with community leaders or we call them community activators, we could call them even information volunteers, we build their capacities on those issues. Again, like looking at what, what are COVID-19 risks, what are the prevention measures, signs, symptoms, and where they can ask for help and care. Then in their role, the community activator, they've been engaging with their peer community member for important protection information and dissemination, including sessions that we designed specifically based on feedback we received from the community members for information that they ask for or for, for information gap that we found it's an area for us to cover during the pandemic. For example, prevention from COVID-19 sessions, there's the gender-based violence prevention and stress management during COVID-19. All those and other and more sessions target community directly through the community activators through our focal point. Additionally, we have been working on a helpline system to respond to the increasing number of calls received related to the COVID-19. It's a two-way communication, so it helps us first to collect data and understand the source of information, the myths and the misconceptions, so we could build our program to address those, and two, help us to address refugees' questions, needs, and concerns, provide translation. So you could say the helpline became a tool for us to raise awareness on COVID-19, uh, for referrals, access, and information activities. Of the things that you've been doing to try to overcome some of those challenges, is there anything you tried that didn't work the way you thought it would? So from the beginning, we look at those two tools as a way for us to address the issue. However, as we mentioned, like we need to be really fast. We need to be the first to provide the right information. And at the beginning, when I look at February or January, or even March, until that time, there was not even that much clarity from the health expert. 
And there were a lot of, even when it comes to that level, like the, the information we received uh, or it was communicated wasn't also clear and, and direct. So that was the challenge, which basically that time we lost great space for rumors and for myths, which has make it very challenging for us through those two tools to address the needs that we have. Additionally, of course, we're, we're our teams are the ones who are on the front line responding. They have families and they have their own communities to, to self-care and provide care for them. And also other challenge I would maybe name is size, again, of the refugee population in the country and the language limitation. And if you could do it all over again from the beginning, what would you do differently? Well, be the first thing is like how to be first. I think that's the most important time. Like when we look at COVID-19 response, we basically fighting against the time. The, more, the first we have the information, the first we are able to communicate that information, we'll be able to address rumors and not give them a space to, to grow and spread in the country. What's one action you would recommend to yeah. other people implementing a COVID response based on your experiences? one-size-fits-all approach is harmful and effective. So we need to invest more in evidence-based response. We need to invest more in localization and a grounded and bottom-up approach to the response. We need to ensure that the local participation and ownership. And the most importantly, we need to ensure that there is gender and women voices in the response that we are doing. Allison, from the more global perspective, how are we learning from Turkey and taking this great experience to inform other contexts? This is part of the process right here, taking time to be able to reflect and, and share the process that we're utilizing in different places, how we're learning and capturing kind of best practices to share is still during the response. So people are quite busy. So having that balance of being able to capture information at a global level and provide that support. One of the things that was added recently was in our global situation reports, there's been an expanded section for countries to report information related to risk communication and community engagement. Already, we have information being kind of more systematically collected about the number of countries that are supporting in this area and some data on how they're supporting. Most recently, we have an additional section to talk about what are the top three things, for instance, that you're hearing related to misinformation, rumors, or stigma. So it gives a, an opportunity to share. And then alongside that is how is CARE working to address those top issues that are rising? Sala, what is one question you still have, something you haven't answered yet and you're still trying to figure out? When we talk about COVID-19 response, it's not just around the information and access to the information, right? We're talking about integrated response. I think that's where the challenge, we need to look at it not just from the health perspective, we need to continue looking at it from social, from economical, and as well as from health perspective. So how we are able to bring all those pieces together to shape our response, it of course will remain challenge. Allison, from a global perspective, what are some of the challenges we're still working on? I think globally, we're engaged in a variety of, of working groups, connecting with other organizations that are working in this space. And we're all kind of collectively trying to figure out what are some of the best guidance, the best tools, how, how to best support effective risk communication and community engagement. How do you assess the impact of the various strategies that are employed? And a lot of work has been done to date and really elevated by previous outbreaks, the importance of of this sector. It's encouraging to see there's still 
sustained and maybe even growing efforts to provide the right guidance, the right tools, the right assistance to ensure that to the best as possible, we are really prioritizing community engagement. We're prioritizing getting the right information out there, but really working to understand perceptions from the communities and engage the communities, of course, but understanding where are those areas of misunderstanding or rumors as we're discussing here that really hinder an effective response. That is still something that's growing. We're still learning and, and working to do that better and better. One question that I'm curious about on my end, Salah, when talking about rumors, how do you see issues related to stigma or stigmatizing attitudes in the community? Are you seeing stigma we face such a challenge in Gaziantep, for example. We, we have someone from the host community posted on Twitter as a reply to the governor's tweet about the situation in the city. person from the host community said that while we are in lockdown, all those Syrians are out and they're enjoying their time out and like there's no pandemic. His response actually like it was really, really impressive and showed leadership that he had where he mentioned he brought numbers of basically almost quarter of, Syri- of the population in Gaza and Tab are Syrian. So he was like, so we expecting from the cases we have 25% to be Syrian, but actually the fact was we have only 2%. And that's not because Syrians are better, but because they, um, they are poorest. They have limited opportunity for them to travel. They have limited opportunities to visit family members. And as a result, they are less spreading the virus than actually the host community. So we, we faced another challenge, like where some of the host communities felt or believed that people from the refugee communities are not adhering to the health expert guidelines, but it's been addressed by the government always, and always we're trying in our programming to look at social cohesion and address some of those, let's say, rumors or accusations against a certain group. That's very interesting and impressive when you have leaders who, who are able to stand up and address stigmatizing attitudes that may be pervasive on the ground. As we've been talking about, you know, the helpline and the, the online platforms to provide timely information, also that process of collecting feedback and input from the community to help target the messages themselves. Could you just speak a little more about the process? How does CARE monitor feedback and input from the community and utilize that to strengthen the risk communication content? So in general, as I mentioned, like we have those two platforms to want to give information and two to collect as well information and data on the misinformation or rumors or myths. So how we are doing it, we, the helpline is operating for eight, nine hours a day and there are more than seven operators responding to the calls. And during those calls, the conversation that's happening with the clients is actually show us or indicate some of the information about what people are saying about the situation in general. So that's one platform. And here, our operators usually immediately, they are able to share what is the right way and what's the right information and the source of the information, et cetera. The second one is through the e-learning, like when we are working with community activators, uh, who they are, let's say, the leaders of their communities. And when they are having this conversation and they are sharing their knowledge with their peer community members, as well, it's a two-way communication, right? So we are able to get information and design programming accordingly. And at the beginning, I mentioned, like, we have this evidence-based response. So basically, even if I have an idea or we have an idea about how the situation looks like, what could be uh, the key myth, uh, it without having 
evidence-based programming, it's difficult to design the program. So we run a COVID-19 study looking at some of those myths and, as well. So we designed the sessions that we provide to the e-learning or even the conversation frequently asked questions that we share with our operators on the helpline, all based on the findings from those assessments. We're also engaged with local working groups that are focused on risk communication, community engagement to help share the information further? Yes, absolutely. The need is bigger than us, right? Again, the numbers, the everything happening in the country. So without cooperating with different bodies, with different stakeholders, it's difficult for us to achieve what we are achieving now. So the first thing is absolutely engaging in working group and uh, working closely with our peer organization, UN agencies, uh, like local run services, local authorities, and as well as local initiatives. That basically help us to avoid duplication, build on learning or knowledge that uh, each organization or each party have, and as a result, be able to provide more coherent response. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Do you have any final thoughts or words of wisdom you want to share with the audience? This platform is, is a great one as a way of promoting learning. Even if that learning isn't totally refined yet, we don't have it all figured out, share as you go and look for ways to share the good practices that you are seeing and developing so that we can, we can grow together in this space. Yeah, I would say the same as Alison, like it's an opportunity for us to optimize for success and discover the story behind all the results that we all at CARE are reporting. So thank you very much. Thanks to our audience for listening today. Join us next time for more learning 